Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to the Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. Welcome to Keys of the Kingdom. I'm Brother Gregory, and again, we're going to be talking about the Kingdom of God, and uh, we did uh, John 7 this morning, and of course, John 8 would be the next in line, but I was going to take a break and move into another topic by the afternoon show, and it has to do with a series of exchanges I had on Facebook with a number of different groups and people. And uh, they started off with a particular post, and this encouraged uh, to go a little bit deeper into these subjects. Uh, There's mostly Christian groups and people involved, and I haven't – I was taking notes during the whole thing, trying to put in their posts and what they were saying and how they were reacting to the original post. And uh, I think that it might be educational for a lot of people, and it will probably go out as a letter to the network along with this recording. And so we'll just kind of wing it and see how things go. And um, looking here for, okay. Uh, The original post, I think, from what I can remember, I may change my mind as I get through these notes. They're kind of unorganized, but we'll organize them as we go. And uh, someone said, when people first became Christians, so I guess he's talking about the early church, it is true that they organized politically as a mutual aid community that had zero coercion. In other words, there was a mutual aid community that operated on charity, which in the biblical text, the word that we see translated charity is also translated love. It just kind of depends on who says it? If Jesus says it, they most often translate it love. If Paul says it, they most often translate it charity. But we don't even see the word charity anywhere in the Old Testament. But uh, charity is evidently a giving of something to somebody. It's free will offering to somebody. And of course, free will offering is in the Old Testament. So I'm just putting it in perspective. So the idea of Uh, organizing politically in a mutual aid community with zero coercion is simply a system that operates on faith, hope, and charity. That's why there's no coercion with fervent charity, free will offerings. And uh, so therefore, you know, that's what the early church was doing. But it wasn't just a mutual aid community. It was more than that. It was the kingdom of God. But he goes on with his original statement saying, however, did they completely disengage from any commerce or work within the existing supply chain of the state-captured economy, and did they exclusively only produce and trade with and for one another? So that's kind of the question, and we'll, we'll kind of 
look at the phrasing of that question as we go through this. But there's a few words that pop out, such as commerce. What is commerce? And, uh, you know, at least how is he defining it? We, we'll look at how anybody else defines it. Or work within an existing supply chain of state-captured economy. I don't know what a state-captured economy is. I don't think they had really a fully state-captured economy. They did have sales tax, but only in trading centers that were, you know, often a walled-in center or maybe it was walled-in by buildings and there was a gate and you come into there or you could open up a booth, you know, kind of like a, a, a super mall and uh, you would have to pay for that booth and you would sell goods out of that. And it was a trading center. And when you sold things, there was a fee for using that facility set up by somebody else. But out in the countryside, you could sell pretty much anything you wanted to anybody you wanted. And most of the money at the time of Christ was gold and silver. There was very little other forms. I mean, there was copper and and uh, maybe even brass or bronze, but that wasn't very common. But it was mostly trade. People were trading. Of course, we talked this morning about the Feast of Tabernacles, and the Feast of Tabernacles was a trading feast. It was a sharing feast, as we said and explained, but it was also a trading feast where people would bring goods that they produced during a given year. You know, if you had sheep, maybe you also produced wool blankets or wool clothing and or weavings. Uh, if you, you know, maybe you also produced some leather goods because you had sheep and therefore you're a producer. Or maybe you had cattle and you were producing leather goods. Or maybe you just traded with somebody who had cattle and you devoted all your time to making leather. So you would be gathering the things that would allow you to tan hides and make leather. This is all private industry, and it really didn't have anything to do with anybody else unless you were going down, you know, one of the roads or passing through a harbor or entering into a trading center or sometimes into some whole cities were like trading centers. And if you wanted to sell anything in that city and you bring it in, because you're going to come in on the roads, and there might be a tax of bringing it in. Often the tax was not, it could be in cash, but it might be in trade where they would just take a portion of the goods. And so it wasn't, there really wasn't a state captured economy. There was all kinds of economy out there that was not captured by the state. Uh, there was places where you would cross certain lines, like I say, in harbors that were built by the Romans, uh, often by the Romans, although we can go down to Ephesus. They had a harbor, and if you traded at Ephesus, there would be a fee for bringing goods and services through their portals, their gates. And, of course, that's what you would have as porters. The money changers were called porters of the temple because they were gatekeepers. Well, there were gatekeepers at these tra uh, trading centers. But there was an additional system that had been set up by Herod, uh, much along the line with the Pharisees. And I'm just laying out this historical before I get into some of my responses. And that was a system of social welfare provided by the government. 
not just by the temple, the by the altars of Abraham and the altars of Moses and uh, many of the other altars or religious organizations at different times throughout the history of mankind. Religion was how you took care of the needy of your society. And even temples were areas in which you could go and there was no fighting, no arguing. It was an area for exchange of things for the purposes of assisting society. They would, even up in the Teutons, they would give gifts to the priests and the priests would have those resources to use to help other people. And of course, you could help other people yourself. It didn't have to go through a priest, but sometimes you needed people who were professional at making sure, and of course, the Teutons had the tens, hundreds, and thousands, just like Christ required in Mark, just like uh, the uh, Israel was doing since the days of Moses, and before the days of Moses, it was being done by his father-in-law that was using the tens, hundreds, and thousands, where, you know, ten families get together, they connect to a network, and you know, they help everybody in their immediate congregation or assembly, but they also are helping other people outside of their assembly so that if a larger force came into their community, they could call for aid from everybody else. And we can go all the way back to Reuben, who were, when they were the tribe of Reuben, when it was setting up in Israel, they were building their own temple other than the tabernacle, move around from area to area, and other Israelites came there and said, what are you doing? Why are you building this tabernacle of your own in the area of Reuben? And they said that they came with their swords at their sides. And they said, no, no, our temple will face your temple. So when they had, and we've explained heave offerings, heave offerings are the offerings that work their way up towards the temple. You know, you, you, the ten families give to their minister, and that minister gives a portion of that to his minister, and it eventually just keeps working up in this network to some of it arriving at the temple. And then a wave offering is when those that surplus that comes up to the temple goes back down. Now, there were lots of offerings that were made. We're not going to go have time to go through that. But all these things, firstborn offerings, all these things, was to fund the social welfare system of a nation. And it bound the whole nation together with charity and free will offerings. And we can give you lots of examples of nations who moved their free will offerings over into the coercive offerings that was mentioned by this original uh, poster, which I believe uh, we'll call him Paul VP, was the original poster. And he and he has this idea that there was zero coercion in the Christian community, and rightly so. But there are many other systems that added in this coercion. Of course, Christ talks about that, where he says you're not to be like the governments of the Gentiles, who call themselves benefactors, but exercise authority. In other words, exercise coercion in the providing of social welfare. They they forced somebody to contribute so they would have the resources to help others. Now, Rome didn't start out doing that. And to some degree, there was a prohibition on that. But under Julius Caesar, that really took a huge leap forward in taking from others. 
to provide welfare for the people, and the people all turned a blind eye to this uh, course of covetous practices of desiring benefits at the expense of others, whether those others was the neighbor next door or maybe the nation next door. In the case of Julius Caesar, he wasn't taking it from Romans. He was taking it from Gauls. So anyway, this idea that there were these two types of system, one that used coercion in one form or another, usually it often started with small amounts of coercion, and then it would go up to uh, greater amounts of coercion. Now, one thing we should also make a distinction, coercion doesn't necessarily mean theft. It means adding some sort of socioeconomic pressure, some sort of coercion to get people to contribute. And, of course, there's a natural coercion where you say, like, if you don't want to be a part of our system, we don't have to help you. And so you could say, that's coercive because you said you wouldn't help us. But we don't have to help you anyway. We have no obligation to help you. We could help you. We may want to help you, but that's not really coercion under those conditions. So anyway, setting that record state straight, I answered his original statement that the, because of this reference to commerce, disengaged from any commerce or work within the existing supply chain. Now, because there's so many things, supply chain, we have to define uh, commerce, we have to define or work within an existing supply chain. You know, what does all that mean? And what is state-captured economy? Because I don't really see a state-captured economy except to trading centers that they might have built and therefore they now control. And they control the exchanges. And people go into those systems because it's a better deal. We have all kinds of uh, forms of this today in our economy. Like there's a local rancher who's gotten together with lots of other big ranchers like himself, it's family ranchers, and they formed a co-op and they sell all their cattle through that co-op, almost all their cattle through that co-op. They know about how many calves they're going to have to go to the sale. Everybody knows that. So that co-op can make contracts with uh, outfits that do the slaughtering or even feedlots. They may, I think they even have their own feedlot that, that they at least manage. And so they know, well, we're going to have so many calves in the month of whatever, uh, September, so many in October, so many in even sometimes they'll raise their calves up. They'll not only wean them, but they'll raise a lot of the calves up. So they're selling them at almost butcher weight. And But they don't sell them. They send them to their own feedlot. So they get a premium. They cut out the middle guy because it's a cooperative. And so everybody, you know, the people that are running the cooperative make a salary. They don't make a profit. But overall, there's a portion of the profit that goes back to the people and a portion that goes to the co-op. And, and that co-op is operating not as a for-profit system, but as a service system. It's like kind of like a credit union. A credit union will loan money, but you really can't call, call the interest that they charge interest, or usury at least. It is interest, but it's not usury because they, they're a non-profit organization. They're not making a profit. They, they need to have some money to provide the service. And that's it. 
And then if they make an excess of profit, it has to go back to the shareholders of the cooperative, which is all the ranchers that are using that. So that's a, a captured economy. At least part of their economy is a captured economy. But it's captured by choice. They've made agreements and contracts that they'll sell X amount of cows or calves to this system. Now, they, I, don't, I haven't read the agreement, so I don't know if they can sell some outside that, but there's some sort of terms. But those are contracted, maybe we could say that, contracted economies. And many times the state operated along the same way of making contracts with people. If you want to come in and sell your goods in our service area, you're going to have to sign an agreement that a portion of what you make in profit is going to go to us. We supply you with the facility, and so now we're going to get a share. And that's reasonable. That's capitalism. If you don't want to sell in that area, you don't have to. But these are often built by the Roman government because of the way and it was built by Roman temples, as a matter of fact. Because, you know, the Temple of Janus and some of these would finance the harbor. And the people who paid in to build the harbor, they're going to reap the financial rewards of the harbor. So they're going to charge you when you use that harbor. Instead of having to roll your grain and little boats up on the beach and then unload and all that stuff, you can actually pull your ship right up to a harbor tie your ship off and offload it with cranes, hugely more efficient. You save lots of money, you save lots of time, save lots of losses. And so the people who built the harbor gets a share of that profit and everybody is happy. That's capitalism. Romans were capitalists, Christians were capitalists. So they're really, today we have almost a state captured economy, but there's a lot of factors that are going on today that wasn't going on at the time of Christ. Some of those came in in the 100, 200, 300 years following Christ, but nothing like what we have today. But anyway, we'll explore this a little bit more, but I, I point out that the Christians not only were capitalists, but many were soldiers that became Christians. What made them separate and peculiar was they would not sign up to take the free bread offered by the Roman government or other city-states. They were even persecuted when Rome outlawed private religion because Christianity was literally a private religion. It was private in the sense that it was not the public religion of Rome. It was another religion that was private. And there was freedom of religion at that time of Christ in Rome. But it was also the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ took the kingdom away from the Pharisees. He appointed it to his little flock, who we, we call the apostles, and to the 120 in the upper room and the 70 that he sent out. They were all playing a part of the kingdom. But so were the people. But the people were in free assemblies, what we call congregations. They weren't members. Now, let's go back real briefly to look at, like I said, that you could have captured economies through contract, like the co-op with the cattle. They've agreed to sell their cattle exclusively, co-op, 
co-op is going to put it exclusively in their feedlots, then they're going to get them butchered with their name. They actually sell beef that has to meet certain standards that they themselves have set up and have agreed to, and they package this beef under the name of the organization, which is like Family Ranchers or something like that. I can't remember. But it's produced by numerous ranchers who have come together to do what they could not do on their own, but together they could afford to create this feedlot. And they paid money into it, and that's their shares, and they get shares back when it makes a profit. So anyway, that's by contract. Well, the government was doing contracts too, that when Caesar put up the money to build a harbor, when you pay to land at that harbor, Caesar's going to get paid back. You can call it a fee or a custom or whatever, which is a form of taxation. But when you signed up for the social welfare of Herod, he actually had a portion of what you produced. So if you grew grain, he would get a portion of that. If you, if you made bricks, he would get a portion of that, just like in Egypt, because you were a member. But that membership is by contract. So we can jump back really quickly without going into much detail to the Ten Commandments. Make no covenant with them nor with their gods. And those of you who have been here know that gods were ruling judges. We see the word, same word for God translated judges in the Old Testament. It was used commonly at the time of Christ to address judges. It was theos in the Greek. Elohim usually in, in the Hebrew, and that was used to address physical human judges who would decide, often decide fact and law. These were the ruling judges of the courts. And But if you made contracts, this is one of the things when you, you go in to sell your goods in a special uh, arena, you know, a sales area, a commercial, you know, mall area, that you have an agreement and you have to abide by the rules of that area. Same as you come into a harbor and you're going to unload stuff. They may say, well, you can unload, but you can only use this corridor or you can only, you know, unload between the hours of such and such because somebody else is unloading and they got a right to unload first. And, and you can only stay here so long and they have rules and you can sign those temporary agreements but when you start signing agreements that last a lifetime, and then those agreements also involve you being a surety for debt, then you can't even get out. Then you're like, now you're back in the bondage of Egypt. So we're walking around this, but my answer was that, wait, Christians were capitalists. How would they say to another Christian, you can't do any business with that guy because he's a Samaritan. Or you can't do any business with that guy because he's a Roman. There was nobody in authority to do that. You could do business with anybody you wanted. If you did it in certain Roman areas, you'd pay a customer or a tax. And that's just, that's just, you're in that environment. But if you did it between Christians in your own home, then you don't have to do that. You don't owe a tax. Because the taxes on your labor was usually, even if you go back to Egypt, the bondage of Egypt, 
that where were the granaries at? The granaries were at the temple. Who managed the granaries? The priests, who were not subject to this system of 20% of your labor belonging to the government. We know that it says it tells us that in the Bible. That that they did not end up having to make a deal where a fifth of their labor belonged to the to uh, the king, the pharaoh. So when the people came and they needed aid, they were getting it from the temple granaries, which is was entrusted to the temple granaries. Now there was probably granaries that directly belonged to the pharaoh, and he was shelling out of that to begin with, but eventually their social welfare depended upon the temple granaries because there was a marrying of church and state where the the church, the priests that managed the granaries were somewhat working for the king. They were independent, but it was a mutual thing. And, And we can show you this throughout history with everybody from the Pharaoh and his people to to Julius Caesar, who was a priest before he became a general, and he took the millions and millions of dollars that he got from selling and murdering Gauls, and he gave it to the priests of the Temple of Jupiter to be redistributed as free bread. And of course, this desiring the dainties of these rulers, even to a temple, brought you into bondage. It was a snare and a trap. David tells us this. Proverbs tells us this. Most of the prophets tell us this. Uh, Peter tells us that coveting these benefits, these rewards of unrighteousness will bring you back into bondage again, entangle you again in the yoke of bondage, or it will make you merchandise, or it will curse your children. Repeated over and over again in the Testaments. So, looking at my response here, where I say that what made them several was and peculiar, peculiar people, was they would not sign up for the free bread offered at the table of the Roman government or other city-states, because that was a table of which Paul tells us we should not eat. Because that table of welfare is a snare, which Paul tells us, quoting David. This is not new ideas. And, of course, when you go to sign up for those, you're making an agreement. Okay, I'm signing up for your free bread, and now a portion of what I produce will go to you. Maybe it's 5%. Maybe, like with Social Security, it was 3%. When you went and got a Social Security number, 3% of what you made, I know I think it's actually one and a half percent of your wages. But now if you were employed by somebody that was probably doubled, so it'd be about three percent of your wages or what would have been your wages is now going to go to the government in a Social Security payment. You're also going to be subject to income tax because you're working for a you know, supposedly private corporation, but it actually isn't a private. It's incorporated to the state. So you're working for them. They probably have an employer identification number. And so that if you make over a certain amount of money, you're going to owe income tax on that money. But of course, when that was first implemented back in 1933, you could make $10,000 and owe no taxes. Well, $10,000 at that time, you could buy three homes with that, $10,000, complete homes. 
completely furnished homes for $10,000. And so that's huge wages. Most people don't make any kind of wages like that. I mean, some people made, you know, $50 a month. And that was fairly decent wages. Man, ran room and board. $50 a month. And that, but if you were making $1,000 or $2,000, if you were making $3,000 a year, that would be like making three to $500,000 a year now. Well, you still wouldn't owe any income tax. If you made three hundred to $500,000, you still wouldn't owe any income tax back then. You know, the equivalent, which would be three or three to five thousand dollars. You would have to make ten thousand dollars before you owed any income tax. Now you're you're paying in your social security percentage, one and a half percent plus your employer might be paying in one and a half percent. And that's a lot, but I mean you can afford that. The business was good. Of course, by 1933, we were already replacing gold and silver. I mean, silver was still in high circulation, but not so much gold. Because what was it, June 5th, 1930? Uh, they recalled gold. And if you were a citizen of the United States, they could confiscate gold that you had, even gold coins. Because we were literally bankrupt at the time. We needed more assets to get the Federal Reserve to loan more money. Another complicated thing. Let's stick to this. People refer to that as commerce, but that isn't what commerce is, and we'll look at that later. But so you could be a soldier, you know, with a, you know, where you're working for the man as a soldier. You could work for the government and still be a Christian, because that system of government, where you could be forced to offer into that government. That's the government of Cain. That's the government of Nimrod. That That's the altars of Cain. He plows the Odama. And Odama is mankind. He plows the Odama. But we'll, we'll explain that more. But basically, that's the system of Cain. God doesn't like that as much. But some people only want that kind of system. And they they don't have the moral character to have the system that the kingdom of God, the system that David was talking about, the system that Paul was talking about, the system that Christ was talking about. They don't have the moral character to do that. If they have enough people around them that have that moral character, they can probably live in that. But they will be recognized as not really having their heart in this system of charity. People tried to start sharing economies where you don't buy anything, everything is shared, everything is split. Well, that's not capitalism. That's Is that what, when Jesus hands out the five denarii, three denarii, and one denarii, did they immediately, the guy with five denarii says, oh, well, I got five and you only got one. Well, here's two of mine, you know, and so then you'll have three, he'll have three, and I'll have three. That's a sharing economy. That's not what God, that's not what Christ's parable was saying. The guy who was given five went out and doubled it. And because he did such a good job, he was given even more. And the guy who had three and he doubled it, he, he was given more. 
the guy had won didn't do anything with him. He had it taken away. Yeah, he had it taken away. He wasn't going to get any more. So, very clearly, Jesus was a capitalist. He's not going to, people who aren't fruitful what the gifts you are given, those gifts may be taken away. So anyway, I said they were even persecuted when Rome outlawed private religion. And of course, I have, you know, I have a link there to Free Britain. I also should put a link in there when they outlawed private religion, which was um, in North Africa under uh, Saturninus. And uh, so we have a trial there showing that the uh, Christians were being uh, on trial for having their own social welfare system because the emperor had said that that's illegal now. You have to join our social welfare system and they wouldn't do it. So what's the deal? Well, if you don't understand these history points that I'm making, you probably need to find out more or you won't understand what the gospel was really talking about. And uh, I even have a link to private religion there. So I... I can set that up so that you can go to that and look at it. The response I got was Gregory, that's me, in today's economy, receiving welfare is clearly free bread. Absolutely. Welfare is free bread. But so is public education. So is having the government take care of your parents, Medicare, Medicaid. Those are all welfare. Even your fire department in cities, if you have a fire department in cities, that's provided by taxation. You know, the early fire departments under Benjamin Franklin were volunteer fire departments. Now, they ended up needing some money to finance it, but you would become a member of that volunteer fire department. And uh, you would have a some sort of insignia or seal on your house, and when there was a fire, the fire department would come there, and there'd be two houses right next to each other, and one is burning down, and the other one is about to get caught on fire by the first one, and they look, and they say, well, this one's a member of our fire department. The one that's on fire is not. They may try to put out the one that's burning because that may spread to theirs, but they're mostly interested in saving their members who signed up and paid in for their services. Now, much of their service is voluntary. They're not getting a wages or salary. But the equipment that they had to buy, that was funded by people who paid in, either donated to the fire department as a free association, or they actually made that, tried to make the fire department some sort. In the case, the fire department wasn't profitable. Uh, agency, but because mostly it's preventing loss, it's not actually improving gain. But if you do a real good job at preventing loss, more people will sign up and say, hey, look, that was a really good deal. You saved that that whole block would have gone up if you hadn't have put out that fire. And so, yeah, that's how they originally started. Now, they just tax everybody in the district. And that's not the way it was originally. And it's certainly not the Christian way to do it. Now, if you're in that district, how can they do that? Well, that's another long story. 
how can they tax you on your land, right? Except it's not your land. We cover this in other areas. Legal title is not. It's only an apparent title. It doesn't carry with it the beneficial interest. And so you have legal title. You don't have the beneficial interest. Somebody else has that, which is why you're subject to property tax. There's a long story to that, but that isn't the topic right now. But he does mention, he says, asking receiving welfare is clearly free bread. But how about working and earning a salary from a corporation or even earning salaries in ferns, USD, which is uh, preferential available to the friends of the state and those close to them, and which is a bondage device for the poor? Not really. It is a bondage device, but it isn't just for the poor. It's a bondage device in a lot of ways. And it's not preferentially available to the friends of the state. That's incorrect. Uh, you can go to almost any country in the world. You can probably go right to China, you know, communist China, and people are using U.S. Federal Reserve notes around as money. There are some countries that don't print any money of their own, didn't. There's very few of them left. But they didn't print any money of their own. Uh, they had no Federal Reserve Bank in their country but they use a lot of U.S. Federal Reserve notes, and we've told the history of some of these countries in other past shows, trying to explain how this all works. We explain what real money is and what firms are, et cetera. The firms, as he's talking about, Federal Reserve notes, they're notes. They have no value, according to the Federal Reserve. They have no value. They're debt notes. Uh, they're stuff posing as money. <laughs> It's not real money, but people use it as money. It's a note. And I've gone through detailed explanations of how that works. But if you're earning a salary from a corporation and employed by that corporation under the authority of that corporation to employ you because that corporation has a federal employee identification, federal employer identification number, and they request from you do you have a federal employee identification number, in other words, a social security number or TIN, they will hire you and they are now obligated by contracts they've already signed to take out a portion of your labor to collect the tax, not for themselves, but for the government who's given them the right to be a federal employer and has given them a number to do so. So this is all contractual agreements. And it's all reasonable. But you can work for corporations, almost any corporation, you can work for. If you've never had a Social Security number, I can show you cases in law where people never had a Social Security number. And they got hired by a company. And they were paid by the company. But then that company got a letter from the IRS saying that they may be held liable if they don't provide that person's social security number. Well, of course, he had no social security number. He never had one. And uh, they got afraid, and they fired him. He took him to court, and he won this case. It was wrong with firing. You can't fire a guy because he doesn't have a social security number. You have to ask him. If he has one, you have to record it. You have to send it to the IRS. But if he doesn't have one, you can still pay him. This goes on in countries all over the world. That people, but what happens in most countries where you don't have 
their equivalent of a social security number. You know, like in uh, Santa Domingo, it would be a sessula. They call it a sessula. If you don't have a sessula, you can still get hired by anybody. But chances are they're going to pay you less. But they're not going to take any money out of your wages. You're going to get the full amount of your wages. But you probably won't have any government benefits. You won't be able to go to their government schools. You won't be able to get government aid in a hospital because you, you're you unnumbered. You, you can go to Romania. You can go to a lot of places where this goes on. Uh, maybe it's Bulgaria where I, I saw this. But there are countries that have it. It's, and I can show you, and we have, you can read Covenants of the Gods and, and a lot of the books. And I don't have anybody writing me saying that the, what we have in the books is incorrect. And I've taken my books to people who used to write law books, and they said, yeah, yeah, this is accurate. This is actually the way it works. But they're not going to like you for telling people how it works. And I'm I'm not really trying to expose the system so much. It's, it's a system of, that brings you back into the bondage of Egypt. What I'm trying to do is show you the way that Moses was trying to show you, the way that Christ was trying to show you, to create that independent voluntary society that it doesn't have to be a member of the state in order to survive. And it's all legal. But people... They're not really willing to do. I've done the homework. I've written the books, written the articles, done the recordings. But people want to think, oh, no, it's the fault of the government. It's what they're doing that got me into trouble. No, no, it's not. It's you and your parents and your grandparents and a lot of people. I mean, I'm not picking on anybody. But you have to take responsibility for what you've created. So back to his statement, but how about working and earning a salary from a corporation or even earning salary in Federal Reserve notes, USD? You can get paid in Federal Reserve notes. That creates no obligation to you whatsoever. What creates the obligation to you is you went down and applied for a number or you somebody else applied for the number and gave it to you and you went out and used that number to get the job. Now, no matter what they pay, you in, you're still going to owe an income tax, and you're still going to owe a Social Security tax. You can't get away from it. I can show you the cases. You, you can't do that because that's, because a portion of your labor belongs to the government. You can't even, if you go to your dentist, and he's got, he wants to do $5,000 worth of dental work, and you say, well, I don't really have the money, but I need I need this dental work. He says, well, can we trade? And he says, well, I could paint your offices. I'm a painter and a wallpaper. He says, yeah, I need my offices painted. So you paint my offices, you wallpaper, you know, the waiting room and all this stuff, and I will do all this dental work, gratuitous. Well, he's not doing it gratuitous. He's using your labor as payment. He technically, or you technically, have to pay Income tax on that $5,000 in work. You, no Federal Reserve notes exchange hands. But you still owe on your labor because you've already waived a right to a portion of your labor when you apply for the Social Security number. Now you say, well, I didn't give him my Social Security number to get the job. Well, now you've, you've got your foot in two different worlds. 
you say that, yeah, this is all the money I made this year when you filed your income tax. And you can say, well, I, I'm not filing. But you probably should. And I'm not going to be a policeman. I'm just saying people have to be very careful. There is a way out because you need to understand the system. You're going to end up between a rock and a hard place. And you know, the fact is there is no single paper that you can just sign and then suddenly you're out of the system. And we talked about that this morning, showing you how people are getting out of the system. And we'll talk about it when we do John 9 for sure. And by the time we get to John, I think it's 25. Maybe it's 12, verse 25. I can't remember. But uh, we'll cover it where it says how, how Christians were getting out of the system of Judea, those that were in that system. They were of the, that system. When Jesus says, these are the ones that have kept uh, in the world but not of the world, the word world he's using there is the system, the constitutional order and system of government of Judea. And he kept them out of that system. They weren't in it. He kept them out of it. But now all the Christians who were going to get baptized under Jesus Christ were joining his system of private religion and they were kicked out of the existing system that they had signed up for. And so now that was like a second exodus. Jesus was redeeming them because he said, I'm the king. Now, people think that he redeemed people because he died. And he died on the cross. That's where he redeemed them. No, he redeemed them by taking the kingdom away from one group and giving it to another group that was not to do that coercion in the providing of social welfare, which Herod and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were doing. That's where he redeemed them. What the death did was seal that redemption in the blood of an innocent man. And that seal puts anybody who violates that independent jurisdiction, it puts them in danger of losing their life. And I can go into that in greater detail, but I'm just giving you a heads up. Because, so anyway, so we've covered a number of things that he brings up. Uh, The ferns aren't what creates the bondage. Now, the ferns play a part because you can't pay a debt with a note. You can only discharge the debt. So now, if you were going to go buy real property, like Abraham did, when he, he they wanted to just give him the property. And he said, no, 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 I have to pay you. So he actually counted out the silver and he paid him for the property. And that was absolutely essential that he do that. And uh, he did. But you can't do that with a note because a note is only a promise to pay. It's not actual payment. You can discharge a debt with a note, standing versus white, standard. I mean, this has been known for years and years and years. And so when you buy land, you cannot buy a lawful title of land with legal tender, with a Federal Reserve note, because you've never made payment in present value because the Federal Reserve tells you that notes have no value. They're, they're a promise to pay. And that it's, and now they, it doesn't even say that it's a promise to pay anymore. It says it's a note, but it doesn't tell you what the note is a note for. And 
There's all kinds of, we can go into the money some other time. We have done it. You know, why the borders, why the change in the notes and all this stuff. What happened to redeemable and lawful money and all this stuff. Well, there's been layers and layers of this bankruptcy. It's been going on for a long time. Now, most of the people in the United States, citizens of the United States and their children, are surety for the debt of the United States. And you see your government raising that debt and everything. And everybody wants to point at the government and say, look what they're doing to us. Look what they're doing to us. But look what you did to your neighbor. You said, I want public school and I don't mind if the sheriff goes to my neighbor's house and forces them to pay for my free education. Uh you know, people says, well, they're robbing the Social Security Fund. We show you. No, they're not. There is no division of funds. If there's no division of funds, you know what that means? Their treasury is one purse. <laughs> what does the Bible say about one purse running towards death? You know, like, you know, so people don't, they don't, they have a very finite view of the Bible. We share everything, just about everything with the people. Uh, if you run out of things to learn and study with us, uh, well, by that time, we'll be sharing with you the things that we don't put out on the net. <laughs> because you'll, you, you'll, you certainly have sat down in a congregation of tens, hundreds, and thousands, and uh, that's the way you're going to get. You're not going to get – I'm not going to post everything on the Internet, for gosh sakes. But anyway, so I address Paul's question, Paul BP. The present-day citizens of the world, and there was a typo in here, and I will fix it later. I thought I had already fixed it, but evidently somehow it didn't get fixed. Maybe it's fixed somewhere else. But it says right completely backing uh, the bondage of Egypt. What I meant to say is the citizens of the world have returned completely back into the bondage of Egypt, where they are dependent upon the government of the world. Now, we could say the governments of the world because the world, again, is the constitutional orders and systems of government, the governments that men create for themselves. Uh, God talks about this. Go back to Samuel. You want to have a ruler who can exercise authority, a chief executive officer, call him a king, prime minister, whatever, and he's going to fight your battles for you. He's going to bring justice and he's going to you know, organize everything because you're too lazy to do it like Moses said. And like his father-in-law said, you don't want to do that. That's too much trouble. You just want to give power to somebody else to solve all these problems. Well, now you've empowered him. He will be corrupted by the power as we see Saul corrupted. And and Samuel tells you that he's going to end up taken and taken and taken and taken and taken. And eventually you'll cry out. And I will not hear you in that day. And so that's what they told you. And so that's where you're at today, is that you've given all this power to government, and whether you're in Canada or Australia or whatever, and you haven't been tending to the weightier matters of law, judgment, mercy, and faith. You haven't been taking care of the widows and orphans through free will offerings, that you've been signing up, making covenants with men who can exercise authority. You've been returning to the bondage of Egypt where 10, 20, 30% of your labor now belongs to the state in order to get benefits that you've also been eating regularly. Now, some people say, well, I don't do any of that. Well, your parents probably did. 
And and if your parents didn't and you didn't, well, okay. Well, now you just have to figure out how the kingdom works, and then you can get the coverture of Christ. But you have to become a doer of the word because he didn't just tell you how the system works. He told you how the system of God works. And really, that's what he talked about mostly. I mean, Moses already told you you weren't to make covenants with these other ruling judges, these other gods of these other systems. You, he already told you you weren't supposed to covet your neighbor's goods. You know, so, I mean, like, that's not a secret, but yet all these welfare systems are based on coveting your neighbor's goods. So, anyway, I, I point out that uh, they're back in this bondage of Egypt. The Israelites uh, went into the bondage because they would not hear the cries of their brother. And, uh, yeah, I think I've got this written. Yeah, I do have it written in another place. Uh, so I'll just try to fill in the gaps. I probably should have gone through this whole thing. Ah, yeah. Okay, here we go. Uh, Genesis 42:21. And let me go down to the coding. I'll just read it in the code. It's, it's easier, and I can fix it as we go. And then I'll just cut out all this bumbling and stuff. <laughs> But, uh, okay, so I'm giving this answer to Paul V. Ah, yeah, here it is, the updated section. Uh, I'll call him VP, Vice President. That's not his real name. <laughs> but it's his real initials. Um, but anyway, uh, the present-day citizens of the world have returned completely back into the bondage of Egypt, like I said. Uh, where they are dependent upon the government of the world for their health care, for their welfare, for the education of their children, even for the care of their parents. The Israelites went into bondage because they would not hear the cries of their brother. Who would, what are we talking about? Joseph. When they threw him into a pit and they were going to sell him into slavery, they wouldn't hear his cries. And we know this because the Bible tells you. Your preacher probably hasn't told you how important it is to hear the cries of your brother and to become a doer of the word and care about them, you know, like the Good Samaritan. In Genesis 42, 21, it, it clearly states, and they said one to another, we are verily guilty concerning our brother, talking about Joseph. Now, they're actually talking to Joseph, and they don't even realize that yet. They will eventually. We are verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when we bes he besought us, and we would not hear. Therefore is this distress come upon us. You know, the whole plague and having to go back into the bondage of Egypt, or go into the bondage of Egypt, which is the same as the bondage to Babylon and the city of Cain. And Reuben answered them, saying, Spake I not unto you, saying, Do not sin against the child, and you would not hear? Therefore, behold, also his blood is required. Of course, he's not dead. He's right there. <laughs> now, some people say that this is all set up so they would survive the plagues that were coming. No. This was to, to learn the lesson that to listen for the Christ of your brother, because this is what we're later seeing Samuel where the people want to have a king who will rule over 
the people, force the contributions eventually of the people, take and take and take and take. And when you get to that point and you're satisfied that he's taken and taken and taken, eventually you'll say, oh, it's too much. And you'll cry out, because the gods which you have chosen for yourself. And he says, and I will not hear you. Why? Because you didn't hear the cries of your brother. And so they were going into bondage to learn to hear the cries of their brother. And eventually that's what we hear is that the, the people were crying out and people were hearing that and people were starting to help one another and God sent Moses. Now you people are shaking your fist at the government thinking the government is the problem. You need to change your tactics. You need to start hearing the cries of your brother and the only way to do that is to sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands, the practical way. And start taking care of one another. Faith, open charity. While you're still paying your tally of bricks. That's what you need to do. That's what Christ said. That's what Moses did. Moses didn't even know really that that was a plan, but he figured it out. You know, why did he send Moses in there to get the people out? He goes and he tells Moses what to say. Moses goes to the Pharaoh and tells him, let my people go. And it gets worse for the people. Well, that was God's plan. So that the people would start to learn what is needed for a free society. And you guys need to learn that too. But the good news is things are going to get a lot worse. (laughs) There's going to be plagues of, I mean, real plagues. (laughs) Not uh, planned pandemics. And so, as a matter of fact, they've already started. And you can, anybody who, who sees things in the spirit sees that way more is coming. But that's the good news. The good news is bad things are coming, and some of you won't wake up till bad things get here. Some of you will start waking up now and start doing what Christ actually said to do for a change. <laughs> so anyway, so I go on to say the same is true today. For generations, the people did not provide for the needy to fervent charity, but you are of uh, are dependent upon the dainties of rulers who exercise authority one over the other, like FDR and LBJ and all these guys, uh, and you've become entangled again in the rudiments of the world. That's what you've done. And if you read Colossians 2.20, it says, wherefore? If ye be dead with Christ from the rudiments of the world, that same word rudiments is also translated elements, so it could be the elements of the world, and the word world there is constitutional order and system of government. So if you were be dead with Christ, because Christ wouldn't take from the elements of the world, he wouldn't he wouldn't uh, apply for their protection or benefits. Uh, Stephen wouldn't. And they suffered for it. But uh, if you have gone back and applied for the elements of the world, the the benefits of the world, the dainties of rulers, you're not dead with Christ to those things. You've gone to get those things again, which you shouldn't be doing. So this is what they're talking about. And, And people need to understand that. Why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? Because you're not just living in the world. You're living of the world. And some of you say, well, I don't take any benefits. 
but you probably have, maybe when you're young, your parents. I mean, you inherit your rights from your parents. If your parents, Israel was in bondage for 400 years because their parents went into bondage. And they never started doing that which would have got them out. And Moses came to teach them that which will get you out. And, of course, when it gets you out, it's going to get you kicked out. Like I said, in John 9 and and other verses, it tells you that the ruler said that if you get this baptism, because it was starting to, they were starting, so many people were getting this baptism of Christ. They had to make it not beneficial to do because the people were joining that system. They were still in both systems, but they were joining that system. So they wanted them to stop, but they couldn't get them to stop. So what were they going to do? They said, well, if you do this, if you persist in following this Jesus Christ, who is already threatened to take the kingdom away from us, calling us vipers, you know, calling us full of dead men, bones and hypocrites and everything else. If you keep following him, we're going to kick you out of the system. And he thought that would deter people. And it certainly did. And John 9 deterred the parents of the blind man. They wouldn't profess Christ. They wouldn't get the baptism of Christ. Only the blind man did. But those who, you know, he came to give sight to those who could not see and eventually take away sight from those who said they see. Because those people who did not sign up with Christ saw the destruction of Jerusalem. There's a lot of people facing a lot of problems. But you're subject to ordinances because you're not dead to the system of the world. Now, you say, well, I want to be. Okay, great. Do it the way Christ said to do it. Do it the way Moses said to do it. Moses did not take people to the edge of the desert, say, fill out these papers, send this to the Commerce Department, send this to, you know, <laughs> to the State Department, and then you're free, but you better run for it because they're going to come after you. <laughs> he didn't do that one time. He taught the people how to come together and become a peculiar people, a nation living by faith, open charity. And in that coming together, you had to learn to care about the lives of somebody else other than you. You had to care about the liberty of somebody else other than you. This entangles you quantumly in the spirit and character of Christ. And that's what you need to be because that that's the only way it being entangled in what the way of Christ is the only way to get through what's coming. So I'm just giving you that heads up. But he goes on in this where he talks about the rudiments of the world, the elements of the world, the elements of the constitutional order and system of government, the, those elements that bring you back into bondage, which is those dainties and benefits. It says, why, as though living in the world, are you subject to ordinances? And it's because you didn't listen to the next line. Touch not, taste not, handle not. Which all are to perish with the using, perish out. Well, they don't die right away, but they, like Adam and Eve, died to the tree of life. They're not going to know what's really going on. I'm trying to show you what's really going on. And the more you willingly look into your own heart, possibly God will open your eyes so that you will see the fullness of the gospel. After the commandments and doctrines of men, 
subject to ordinances after the commandments and doctrines of men. So these doctrines of men is not the doctrines of Christ. It's It's the laws. It's the statutes and the rules of men. And later on in Colossians, in Colossians 3, he says, Mortify, therefore, your members which are upon the earth, fornication, uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness. These are all actually overrelated things. You know, fornication is, there's, it's not always sexual fornication. I mean, if there's a harlot riding a beast and you have an entanglement with that harlot, or the beast she rides, and that entanglement has to do with covetous practices, that's idolatry. That's what they're saying. That covetousness is idolatry. And so we need to understand what that looks like. So, people don't see all this. And you can even go on into Colossians 6. For which things sake the wrath of God cometh on the children of disobedience. See, if you're coveting your neighbor's goods to men who exercise authority, one over the other, the government of, of the rulers and princes of the other nations that exercise authority one over the other in order to provide that daily bread, the, the wrath of God cometh to those children of disobedience, because that is disobedience. In the which ye also walked sometimes when ye lived in them, when you lived in that system. But now ye also put off all these, he's going to list more things, anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy communications out of your mouth. You, you will put off those things as well. Lie not to one another. Don't lie to yourself either. Seeing that ye have put off the old man with his deeds. So what deeds are those? Well, those are the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which God hates. So hopefully you'll put off all those deeds. So anyway, then I gave him a link to the bondage of Egypt. There's another guy, Brian Kay. And uh, he responded to some of, one of my posts saying, according to the New Testament, they still existed within the Roman society, having jobs, owning businesses, and even uh, gas, being both master and owning slaves, like somehow owning slaves uh, is a bad thing. Well, no, not necessarily. It could be a good thing for the slave. I mean, he gets health care, he gets all kinds of things, and he he's also has a master who says, you know, time to get up and get to work, you know. Just because you own a slave doesn't mean you're beating him. And, now nah, I don't advocate slavery, but some people only want to be a slave. They they don't want, want the responsibility. I mean, that's what an employee is. I mean, all your employer-employee laws and regulations, if you can go to Clark's summary of U.S. American law, they're all out of the master-slave relationship laws that came out of Rome. Because an employee is somebody who is 
a slave. Now you say, well, I can quit that job. I don't have to work for that guy. That's right. And he's taking 20, 30% out of your wages and you can quit him. But when you go to your next job, that guy's going to take 20 to 30% out of your wages. He's just, he's not your employer. He's your taskmaster. He's the guy who's going to say, yeah, okay, over here, this job, you flip burgers. Over at this job, we we cook fish because this is uh, fish and chips. And over there, it's Burger King. So your job changed, but you're still getting a portion of your labor taken away and given to your real employer, which is the federal government. You know, it's like the story when I asked my dad when I was seven years old who who he worked for. And he, understanding how the law worked and wrote law books, he says, well, until July 1st, I work for the government. After that, I work for myself. Because he was in a 50% income tax bracket. They, they were going to take all, it was, he knew, I'm working for the government. <laughs> you know, he's not, that's his employer. Now, he wasn't employed directly by them, although he was actually in a law firm. Uh, I think he was in a law firm then. He, I know he was eventually in a law firm, and then eventually he quit that law firm and would never, ever be a member of a law firm again. <laughs> but anyway, I have to ask him why he did all that, because I never did get a full explanation of it. But I, I don't think he liked being under the authority of others, and he saw so many law firms doing criminal things. I mean, that's why we left Texas, is that the good old boy mentality was unbelievable. And, of course, like, he knew. <laughs> he knew the Bushes, so, and a lot of other people in uh, both Democratic and Republican side of government, and he said they're all corrupt. And And... Too many of the lawyers that he had to work with and the courts he had to work with were full of corruption, and he just couldn't tolerate it. And so one day, all of a sudden, he come in uh, with a box full of his uh, pictures that he had on the wall in his office. We have them here now. My son has some of them. And uh, moved, moved from Texas to California. And uh, eventually... He lived up here in Oregon for a while because of the corruption in California, which has which gotten considerably worse. But it's going to go that way because all these systems are dependent not upon the ways of Christ, but upon the ways of Nimrod, which is legal charity, the ways of Pharaoh, the ways of FDR, and the ways of LBJ. And so anyway... Brian Kay says, according to the New Testament, they still existed within the Roman society. Well, in, he says within, but in the Roman society would be more accurate. Having jobs, owning businesses, and even guests being both masters and owning slaves. And slaves owned by masters and paying taxes to the Roman government as commanded by Jesus, Paul, and Peter. And this is where he goes completely wrong. Commanded by Jesus, Paul, and Peter? No, not commanded. Not at all. That's not why you pay taxes. Jesus never said, I want everybody to pay taxes. So if you're not paying taxes now, go sign up so that you can start paying taxes. That's not what Jesus said. He says, if you owe the tax, pay the tax. 
He didn't say if you don't owe the tax, don't pay the tax. Uh, you know, pay the tax anyway. He didn't say do that. Now, he didn't owe taxes. And, of course, we have an old article, a fishy story, uh, tax story, and we explain it in great detail. I won't go through all of it right now. But, no, he doesn't want you to be under tribute. So, anyway, never once uttering a word about government being an inherently immoral idea. Yes, he did. <laughs> the Corbin of the Pharisees, which was a government system, was making the word of God to none effect. Uh, when he says, you're not to be like the governments of the Gentiles who call themselves benefactors but exercise authority one over the other, is not to be that way with you. That's about government. And, of course, you get engaging in covetous practice. You weren't to be covetous. If the government has a system of coveting your neighbor's goods through the agency and authority, the exercising authority of government, you're not supposed to be a part of that. Christ said not to be a part of that. So the idea that never uttering a word about the government being inherently immoral, government, some of the government systems is inherently moral. To say government itself, no. The Bible even teaches you what to put in a constitution if you decide to have a chief executive officer, a king, who can exercise authority. He says you, you need to put these five elements in your constitution, and you need to read it to them, have your priests read it to them every day. Well, of the we have a whole book, free online. You don't have to pay me anything. It explains those five elements and how many of them are not in the Constitution of the United States and why they should be. And, you know, I'm not picking on the Constitution. I'm just pointing out the facts. You know, it tells you to write these things down. Read it to your king every day. That's the Constitution he's talking about. But you don't even know what I'm talking about. You don't even know where that's found. But contract covenants and constitutions tells you in detail. So Brian's wrong. Uh, he's in error. He's talking about, I mean, the, the Bible is telling you what good government is and what bad government is. Now, the idea that you can't have any government, no, no, you can't. But it should not be a coercive government. And, of course, exercising authority one over the other in order to provide benefits is that course of government, which is why Christ preached a government of charity, not a government of forced suffering. John the Baptist did the same thing. Until John the Baptist, all the governments of the world are trying to create some sort of utopia by forcing the contribution to the people. That's what it tells you in the Bible. Until John the Baptist, they were trying to establish their kingdom of heaven by force. But John the Baptist said no. That if you have extra, share with those that don't have enough. You know, whether coats or meat or whatever. Through charity. Through love for one another. That's what he was saying to do. But that's not what you're doing today. Certainly not what the churches are doing. Most of the social welfare in every single church in the United States, almost every single church in the United States, it's from the government that exercises authority. Takes away either from the people that are living now or the people that are not even yet born because they borrow against the future. So I wrote back to Brian Kay 
that um, I read most of your comment and conversation with um, Matthew T. We'll call him Matthew T. I'll remove these other letters so that we don't give away their name too much. Don't want any repercussions coming back on them. But uh, there are things missing in your rationale. First, uh, I'm correcting a little bit. <laughs> Oops. Uh, sorry. Oops, I see. Paying taxes to the Roman government as commanded by Jesus and Paul, and of course I just went through that talking to you about it, is, uh, uh, he goes on to say, but preaching the second coming of the righteous monarch who will slaughter all who oppose him when he returns. That's just made up. That there's no, that that is not what it says in the Bible. I mean, even the word second coming is, not in the Bible. It talks about returning, and people are kind of very confused about when that is, but I don't want to argue that debate, but the reality is Jesus isn't coming back to slaughter people. Uh, That is just not the way it works. Now, people will be slaughtered, but it won't be by the hand of Jesus. So, you know, people just have to figure that out for themselves. Now, did I just... uh, And then I go into... Saying, if you owe the tax, pay the tax. That's what he said. Proverbs twelve twenty four says, the hand of the diligent shall bear rule, but the slothful shall be under tribute. So if you're under tribute, chances are you've been slothful. That's, just, that's, what the, that's the principle of the Bible. That's in Proverbs, which is a lot of the principles. So slothful in what? This is a, a critical question that everybody should be Asking, what are you slothful in? Well, of course, it's the ways of Christ. You're, you're not taking care of one another through faith, hope, and charity. You're not attending to the weightier matters. Most of you don't even know what jury nullification is. You wouldn't know how to implement it. Some of you may think you do. We have articles that explain how it works. But the reality is if you're in the system, you're probably going to – most of the judicial decisions are going to be in administrative courts, which do not have to give you – the right of jury nullification because you're not in a common law court. And now you can go beat around the bushes, but ultimately what you're going to need is the Holy Spirit if you get dragged into court, and you're not going to have the Holy Spirit unless you're actually the doer of the word. And uh, one of the taxes in Judea uh, after uh, Herod and the Pharisees got together and blended this church and state system that's set up by Herod, and was also going to be set up in Rome, was the Corbin of Herod and the Pharisees, and even the Corbin of Rome. In the Old Testament, the Corbin was free will offerings, but the Corbin of the Pharisees was not free will offerings. It was those coercive offerings that Paul, VP, uh, was talking about, which we should not depend on. And yet we know, historically, we have depended on it for almost 100 years in America. All the public schools before were financed by free will offerings. Very few received tax dollars, and most of that tax dollars did not support the actual cost of the education. You could go to 
major colleges, Harvard, uh, Yale, Princeton, and if you couldn't afford tuition, you could still go there if you could maintain the grades. If you maintained the grades, you could go there. And when you got out of the school, you would not owe a student loan to anybody. But you would be expected to contribute to the school, but only expected and hope that you would do it as an alumni. And so that they could do this free education to those talented people who could actually get through the education and actually learn something, become valuable aids to society. Uh, so this is what people don't realize. They don't understand the history. They don't know how we got here. If you want to find out how to get back to liberty, you got to find out how you got to bondage because that's where you're at again in the bondage of Egypt. Signing up with the government temple of Herod, and I have articles that explain what that, how that was and how you became a member and how you got a name and a number and all that stuff. Uh, and it was also run by the Pharisees who were sitting in the seat of Moses. But uh, Herod was dead. There was no king in Judea. And this was out of Jerusalem. There was Herod Antipas over there in, in Galilee, which is another jurisdiction, and there was Philip. But there was nobody king in Jerusalem until Jesus was held as the highest son of David, anointed as the king by the woman of the city, which they don't want you to know who that is, and we explain that in other places. That made the word... But their covetous practices that they set up, the system that Herod didn't just build the temple in Jerusalem, the Jewish temple in Jerusalem. He also built the temple of Roma, which was a similar system because Rome was moving to that kind of system, like I said, with Julius Caesar. I mean, there was remnants of it even before Julius Caesar, but Julius Caesar really got the ball rolling with this free bread and welfare of the state. And we, we tell that on, on our page on Julius Caesar. But these systems makes the word of God to none effect. And as we explained Polybius 150 years before Jesus Christ, who was working for the Roman government, although he was a Corinthian, said that when we develop an appetite for benefits and the habit of receiving them at the expense of others, you know, and, 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 and uh, the property of others, and institute the rule of force and violence in order to obtain the value of other people's property for our benefit, we will degenerate into perfect savages and find ourselves once more a monarch and a king. And, of course, Peter said the same thing, that through your covetous practices you'll be made merchandise, which we could translate into human resources, where a portion of your labor now belonged to the state. This is the road that you've gone. Now, I don't know anybody who puts it out so clearly in the books. Now, in the books, I don't ramble on quite so much. Well, it's, I don't think I do. <laughs> you can read them for free and tell me. You know, I'm always willing to hear a little criticism. Uh, a little bit, you know. I have to be, fra I have a very fragile ego. No, I don't. But there are many such uh Now, I stand here. There are many such trades in the New Testament. Let's, uh, I think I meant to say trades or something. But anyway, 
I'm just going to put it in there so that people can find the link to uh, uh, the the article on Corbin. And we have articles on Social Security explaining how Social Security works, how there is no separate trust fund. That's ruled in law. They tell you all these things. Now, if your source is going to be the news or the rumors that people tell you, or a few books with very little footnotes, we have 100,000 footnotes in our books, so you can look it up yourself. I go on and respond to this other fellow that he was having this conversation with, Tannis, um, that I was reading the debate between him and Brian Kay, and already responded to him, which I just went through, uh, to him concerning the objections by Jesus, Paul, Peter, and all the prophets against the signing up for social welfare from the government that exercises authority to get benefits coercively from the government called, you know, these benefits called dainties, which I use that word because that's what we find in Proverbs, when you get the dainties of rulers, that uh, they're deceitful dainties. And, And David says, what should have been for your welfare becomes a snare. And Peter says, it will make you merchandise and curse your children. That's where you're at. That's where you're waking up at. Now you want to, you have to admit that so that we can get on to the solution. And of course, Christ had the solution, but nobody's hardly doing what Christ said to do. So at the expense of your neighbor, like the Corbin of the Pharisees, is going to bring you back into the bondage of Egypt. And it has. That's how you. That's why you're there. It's not because of what Biden did. It's not because of what, even what FDR. FDR made it possible, but nobody had to sign up. And, you know, from the head of the IRS, it said that, you know, you don't need a number to live and work in the United States. Who rejects you? And like I said, there's court cases where people fired people because they didn't have a Social Security number. And that was ruled as wrongful firing. Now, I don't know if you can get that ruling in today's courts because today's courts are so corrupt. But why are they so corrupt? It's because you have not been attending to the weightier matters. You haven't been sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands. You couldn't even overturn a mask mandate in a planned pandemic. You couldn't do anything about it because you're a scattered flock. And I know about flocks. Now, we've cut our sheep down considerably. We don't have as many as we do because I have to do all this other work here. And I'm getting old. My wife's getting old. And we're not going to be doing all that. Our grandkids are helping out. But it's still a lot of work. So I'm spending it trying to help you become rain sheep. Because there are sheep that are farm flocks. They're kept behind a fence. They can't get out of the fence. Our sheep are out on 1,000 acres of desert ground. They're a range sheep. They have to stay together. They have to learn how to stay together or they'll be eaten up. And, you know, with me and the Holy Spirit, hopefully we'll keep the mountain lions and bobcats from eating them up too. <laughs> but uh, we're doing a lot of culling. The, the ones who don't produce, and they're going to get culled. And the ones who do produce, like the you know, the guy that had five talents and turned it into ten talents, uh, we'll, we'll give them the extra alfalfa. <laughs> and, and 
you know, it's symbolic of what you need to be doing because you don't want to weaken the people in your congregation, but you can't cast them out. You have to let the Holy... If you're able to cast people out of your congregation, now you can decide you don't want to serve them, but you have to remember that congregation that you serve is not your congregation. So how could you cast people out of that congregation? You could say, well, I don't want to serve them anymore. But one of the problems is sometimes these congregations, they don't understand what a congregation should do. And one of our ministers told me I need to talk more about that. Again, a congregation of 10 families, elders of 10 families, the heads of 10 families, so it's those 10 elders and their families. They are a congregation. They are a free assembly with no coercion. They agree to come together and they come together. The minister they pick is not a member of that congregation. He should pick his own congregation of other ministers, bringing 100 families together in a single network. And then when they pick a minister, he should get together with 10 other or nine other ministers like himself, which we would call an episcopo in the Greek and call an overseer. Because what he's going to do is bring those 100 families into contact with 1,000 families because he's, in, in, in a sense, he's overseeing. He's not exercising authority. He's overseen so that if there was a problem in one congregation that was overwhelming that congregation, he could call for aid amongst the other 900, congrega- 900 people in the congregation or, or even 9,000 and say, we've got a really bad problem over here. They need a lot of help. I remember when there was a nuclear power plant, plant about ready to go f- Fukushima in the Midwest. And it wasn't that far from one of our congregants. And he announced it, and we shared it with the network. There were invitations all over the United States to house the people that were near that if they had to be evacuated. But people did not remain faithful to the idea of creating a network of service. You know, a lot of people did. We have people that are remaining faithful. But that's the test, is... Will you remain faithful to that network? Will you try to build that network? But, of course, it's a voluntary network. So when you say building it, we're not cementing people together with bricks. We're cementing people together with love because they actually care about somebody else's rights other than just their own. Very simple. Very simple. So we need to understand all themes I see the spell check has been... I I wrote all of this on my phone and then I transferred it over to, <laughs> to uh, an email and then I emailed it to myself and I just downloaded it just moments before the show uh, started and I'm seeing like, what the heck did that? <laughs> so anyway, I'll cut some of this out. But it says, we need to understand that all temples were government buildings providing government services for the people. 
The difference between the temple of God and the temples of the world is the means and method by which those services were provided. They're either done through coercive means, mentioned by Paul, you know, Paul originated this, or by non-coercive means, which is what Christ was teaching. So we have to take a look at that and figure out what are they talking about? Because there is the mammon of unrighteousness. That's the system that uses the means and method of coercion. And then there is the mammon of righteousness. You know, the same as there is the Corbin of the Herod and the Pharisees, but there's also the Corbin of Christ. So how do those two different things work? And, and really, you're not going to know until you actually walk the walk. But that's what we're talking about. And so anyway, in talking to Matthew T, I say, uh, I would start with Romans 13, since both of you are a little confused about what it is saying. And of course we have, and this is, you know, I don't blame anybody because there's so much misinformation out there about this uh, thing that we call Romans 13. Uh, Romans 13 is about liberty. That's what it's about. It's not about government. It's about how you govern yourself. You either govern yourself through liberty or you govern yourself. You you give other men power to govern you. And you don't want to do that. Uh, It says here, Matthew T. wrote Brian K. Jesus told Peter they were immune from the temple tax. Uh, No, they weren't immune from the temple tax. And and it goes on to say, and had him miraculously find a coin in the fish's mouth. And I'll put a link again to the article that explains what was actually going on there. Because you have to understand the law at the time, how the taxes were collected, how who was responsible for paying the taxes, what the taxes were to cover, what they were supposed to accomplish, and why they could force the taxes. You know, when they said, does your master pay the tax? Peter misspoke. Jesus didn't owe the tax. And Jesus said, who owes the tax of uh, the kings? The people or the children? Well, he's talking about the children of the king. Jesus is the children of the king. (laughs) He's a child of the king. You're not. You may desire to be, but right now your father is in Washington, D.C. or wherever, the capital of Canada and Australia, because the government's your father, and that's why Jesus said, call no man on earth father. But anyways, and there was this coin in the fish's mouth that uh, was found and miraculously paid the tax. But why did Jesus even pay the tax? Because he was making Peter know how important it is to make your yeses yes and your noes no. And Peter didn't actually owe the tax. I don't believe he did. But he said, my master pays the tax. And this is the confusion because some people were paying into the temple, but not because they had signed up, just because they knew that the temple was the system of social welfare, but they were voluntarily paying into it. You know, some people voluntarily pay property tax. In fact, that seems to be the entire attitude of the early Christians 
to all these immoral systems of taxation and slavery and so forth, because some slavery is immoral. It is more important to spread the gospel and, and then let that work out the better way in people. So what is the gospel? It's the gospel of the kingdom. Spread the gospel of the kingdom, the good news of the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand. There was a way in which you could become a part of the gospel of the kingdom. You could actually become a part of that, but you had to seek it. Couldn't jump into it. Because clearly when Jesus says, I appoint unto you a kingdom, those men were a part of the kingdom. It's very clear that when men were put out of the temple because they professed Christ, the blind man didn't even get baptized and he was put out of the temple. Jesus went looking for him and said, I am he. And they say he worshipped him. Well, worship was a, a political term. He served him. He didn't serve Herod or the uh, Pharisees and their system. And he was now going to serve Jesus and his system. But the difference is the means and the method. The temple of Herod and the Pharisees forced the contribution to the people. The temple of Jesus Christ and the system of Jesus Christ, they depended upon charity, which is non-coercive. So this this was the dividing line. People who say, I believe in Jesus, but I still want to apply to men who exercise authority to get my benefits. And they don't want to give up their benefits. They don't want to eat the flesh of Jesus. They don't want to drink his blood. They don't want to go his way. That's written in that metaphor so that people can say, well, what is that, cannibalism? No, it's not cannibalism. He's saying, no, no you, the only benefits you can take are those that are freely given, which is what I do. I freely give my life. This is what Jesus was saying. He, he lays down no greater love. You have to have a kingdom of love or a kingdom not of love. And most of the people who say they believe in Jesus are of the system that's not love, but force and coercion. So, the early Christians, these aren't necessarily immoral systems. They just lack. Well, you can say they're immoral in the sense that they lack the morality of Christ. They're, they're not righteous systems. They're based on force. They're based on oppressing their fellow man. You know, that we're going to get this on the tax rolls because we think everybody should have a community center. They did that up in Silver Lake. And they drew a big line to create a gigantic fire district and put all these people in the fire district. Some of them were so far away that nobody would get there before the, the fire burned their place down. Uh, my son and several of the people in the community created the, one of the largest fire districts in, uh, well, this side of, I think, the Mississippi. I don't know. I, I don't have a, this is what the rumor is, so I may be wrong about that. But it's big. It covers a vast area. But it's all voluntary. They got lots of donations. But it's not, a, it's not government funded by taxation. And now people want them to put it on the tax rolls, but that's not that's not the way it's supposed to work. And I think it's really good 
and I have another son that's trying to get roll back people more to take back their responsibilities because you're not going to get your rights back until you start taking back your responsibilities. So anyway, I explain that that the system and, and you know if if it, your income tax doesn't actually pay for government services, it just pays for the interest on the loan. And that interest is climbing and climbing and climbing as the amount of debt climbs and climbs and climbs. You'll never pay it off. Your children will never pay it off. And they probably never will have to because the system will collapse. But when the system collapses, many of your children will die. Many of you will die. Because that's the goal of the real evil that's behind all these changes you see. It's not Klaus Schwab. He's not bright enough to do this. It's not even Noah Harari. These guys are all puppets of some other evil force. And you, you would be able to see that evil force if you get quantumly entangled with the ways of Christ. <laughs> it, you don't need to see it unless God shows it to you, but you you will be able to see it at that point if God so wishes it. Now, God so wishes, I'm not talking about an old man up there who says, ah, I think I want them to see this, and you know, I think I want this. No, it's, it's just God is built into every aspect of the system. It's created by God. It's held together by this thing we call God. We can't fathom what God is, but it's something that for us is in the moment. It's the I am. And Jesus uses this I am, that I am, and we hear this over and over again, this I am, because it's in the moment, kingdom of God for us is in the moment. We may be able to see the future. We may be able to see the past. When Jesus was preaching, they said, how does he know all this stuff? He says, because my father gives it to me. Well, he knew all that stuff for the same reason. He also knew what was coming in the future. And he also knew what people were thinking, that they were planning to kill him. He knew it. This is also why he could, you know, walk around and uh, and not be found when he didn't want to be found. And and you will need that same skill too eventually. Just a little heads up on that. But anyway, in essence, as it is written, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable, peaceably with all. Well, if you're desiring to collect taxes at the expense of your neighbor to get benefits, you're not gathering together peaceably because the premise of your gathering together is force, coercion, and you don't want to do that. But uh, it also says, and bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. So, it really is completely unproductive to be blaming everything on the Federal Reserve and Klaus Schwab and all this stuff. You need to focus on the righteousness of God. What is the system he wants you to be a part of? It goes on to say, yet ultimately, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. But you got to know what God wants you to do. And God does not want you to covet your neighbor's goods. He doesn't want, evidently, he doesn't want you to curse those who persecute you. And 
you know, not to say that you're not a little deserving of persecution. I don't know. And so I explained that they were not really immune from the temple tax. But I have also explained what the temple tax really was uh, and and what it was for. I mean, the Corbin of the Pharisees was to take care of the social welfare of society. But there was a lot of uh, abuse of the funds. And Christ pointed that out. I mean, that's why he was firing the money changers who were the porters of the temple. They were the, the gatekeepers receiving the donation to the people, even the selling of doves. You know, when it talks about, you know, you're supposed to sacrifice the turtle love, I have lots of articles on that. And people say, like, what? how does that help anything, sacrificing this turtle dove? And so I have an article on turtle dove. What is the turtle dove? There's, there's one word for dove or pigeon, and there's another Hebrew word that we translate into turtle dove. And there happens to be a turtle dove goddess of Sumer. And the... How was Sumer operating? And they were to be cut off entirely from this turtle love and this vision of Abraham. So what, what is that all about? Well, the same word for the turtle dove that you're supposed to sacrifice if you do mean things to somebody and you can't pay them back and you're supposed to go make this sacrifice of a turtle dove. The same word for turtle dove is the same word for a piece of your estate. It's not about killing a dove. That if you if you cause somebody damage or injury or you take something that belongs to another and you really owe them back, but there's no way to give back to them. They're gone out of the picture. It was a stranger passing through. You don't know where he was or anything. You need to, you know, do something to make recompense. And one of those things is to give up a piece of your estate, you know, some sort of contribution. You can't give it to him, so you give it to the ministers who are taking care of the needy of society. You fund them. We go through all this and many other explanations, going through every chapter of Exodus, almost every chapter of Exodus, and going through many of the epistles and many of the minor prophets, trying to show you how that system works. But you're really going to learn when you actually start sitting down the tens, hundreds, and thousands and becoming the government of the people, for the people, and by the people through non-coercive means where you, where you actually learn how to care for one another. When you do that, you will learn way more than I can teach you on the radio. While Jesus did not owe the tax as a virtual high priest and king, because Jesus was the high priest, we've gone over that. He was the rightful king, the highest son of David. And Peter may have not been registered. You can look up our article on idiotes, because he was idiotes. What does that mean? Which is another issue that we deal with in lots of places. The problem was Peter had misspoke by answering the question with a yes. What did Jesus say about that? Jesus was just making his yes, yes, Peter's yes, yes. You said that. And according to Matthew 5.37, but let your communication be yea, yea, and nay, nay. For whatsoever is more than these cometh of evil. Now, when he made that statement, he was talking about swearing oaths and signing under penalty of perjury and all these kinds of things. But the reality is, is you are expected. If you say, I will do it, you should do it. 
And you shouldn't be like Darth Vader and that I'm going to change the agreement. <laughs> You're not supposed to be doing that. That's not what you should be doing. So anyway, I have a whole article on paying tribute, and I put the link there. Now, Matthew T., uh, he made a response, and I asked him, did you even read the article I wrote and share? I share these articles for a reason. And... Um, I also wrote here, again, I'm looking at my notes, so I'll I'll just have to cut these pauses out and try to make heads or tails out of this. But it appears many of the disciples were unregistered. That's part of the same thing uh, with the system of Corbin set up by Herod and the Pharisees. And and that's partly why Jesus picked these guys, but not solely, because just being unregistered doesn't make you righteous. You have to want to be a part of a righteous system. Just not being a part of any system just makes you a denizen. You know, somebody who's just outside of everything. But that's, going back to the one of the original questions is, you know, were they still involved with the world? Yeah, they were, to be in the world. Of course, they can still buy things and sell things and all this stuff. But they were not in the social welfare system. Now there's coming a time where the image of the beast, the image of the beast of Rome, where you can't even get a job without getting numbered. You could do that in the days of Judea. Now there was a a period of time, we see it mentioned in the Bible, where a large number of Jews were cast out of Rome. They couldn't do business in Rome. They were sent out of Rome, but there was lots of other places for them to go. And fortunately, Paul was making tents so they would have shelter as they went there. They had already created a network that went all over the Roman Empire. So there was plenty of places. I'm going to go up with the Christians in Corinth, or I'm going to go over with the Christians in Gaul, or I'm going to go over with the Christians in Great Britain, because there were Christians in Great Britain already. Both Linus and Claudia were from Great Britain. Their father was a king in Great Britain. And uh, Claudia was married to a nephew of Paul. (laughs) So uh, there was a lot of stuff going on at that time that most people are completely unaware of, which is another whole thing. We we know that the chief rulers were eventually uh, make the rule that if you profess Jesus as the Christ, you would be kicked out of the system, which is what I was mentioning earlier. Modern Christians, which may not be real followers of Christ, may not be, but actually workers of iniquity as foretold by Jesus and the apostles warned. You know, in John nine twenty two, these words spake his parents because they feared the Jews for the Jews had agreed already that if any man did confess that Jesus was the Christ, he would be put out of the synagogue. And when they say that, they mean the synagogue as the network of synagogues that were tied to the temple built by Herod and the system that was built by and run by the Pharisees. Yeah, I see, I put a lot of things in here that I, I, you know, I was making a record. I don't know if I will keep some of these things in here. Um... Oh, okay, so the, 
somebody had been talking about Paul being a Roman citizen. And uh, a Michael P., uh, who I know, has written a lot of stuff. I, a lot of the stuff that he's written, I, I can't believe that he didn't have the knowledge of writing that because he got that off of our website. There's just too many familiarities and few, so few other people who have actually done the original research. So I think that I am one of his big research sources, which is okay because we don't have a copyright in anything. I would, and he does share our articles a lot of times. And what he had done was share our article on was Paul a Roman citizen. And uh, in that, we go into the real meaning of the word Romeos, which is a Greek word, which means whole. It doesn't mean Roman citizenship. And Paul was whole. He was in possession of his rights. It's kind of like the Latin. If you were to say this in Latin, you would say sui juris. But Romeos is actually even stronger than the phrase sui juris, the Latin phrase sui juris. And Paul was Romeos, but Romeos was clearly, just from the biblical text alone, everybody should know that Romeos does not mean a citizen of Rome, a voting citizen of Rome, certainly not a participant and taxpayer of Rome. He wasn't that. He was exempt from that. He was Romeos. This was a freedom. This was a freedom status, Romeos. And like I point out that all centurions, were granted Roman citizenship just as a centurion, you know, as a soldier. There were there were some soldiers who weren't really centurions and they didn't automatically get Roman citizenship, but they got some privileges within the Roman system. And they were maybe more likely to be candidates for Roman citizenship, but they were not really centurions. The centurions you would automatically get Roman citizenship if you served out your term. And the head of the cohort, he was, you know, he's an officer. He's automatically a Roman citizenship. But he tells you right in the text that he had to pay a great sum because he asked them, are you Romeos? And he said, yes. And he says, I had to pay a great sum for this freedom, which was the status of Romeos. And but Paul says, you know, I was this by birth. And so then you have to go back and find out who was Paul's dad? Who was Paul's mother? Who was Paul's half-brother? Well, that was the father of the husband of Claudia. <laughs> so, I mean, these are, it's a matter of record, and there's plenty of records. That, I mean, this is a lot more obvious if you actually get into all the records. I mean, there's tons of records nobody hardly ever reads. It's like the cuneiform writings that they've recently discovered. They discovered like 10,000 tablets, and people haven't even read them all yet. They're still reading them. Nobody's gone through the 10,000. I mean, how many people read cuneiform? <laughs> so uh, then they found another 10,000. So they had 20,000. Now they found 30,000. I think they've really... If you count the fragments, they they, they probably have over 20,000 of these clay cuneiform tablets. And they, they cover a huge, wide range of stuff. And, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the people who do know cuneiform, and they're starting to figure that some of them are, but again, it's like people trying to read the Bible, and people that we're trying to communicate and show you what the Bible really says. 
And you can say, well, that's not what it says. But you're going to have to show me where that's not what it says and that, that, that our claims are inaccurate or not correct. They're going to have to come up with opposing facts because we've done our homework. And what we're saying is that, you know, you should have, you know, when he said that I had to pay a great sum for this freedom and he's the head of the court, He's not talking about Roman citizenship. So the status of Romeos is clearly something else. And I mean, and the term Romeos was around for hundreds of years. I mean, eventually it'd be used in Constantine to describe Roman citizenship. But it's Roman citizenship that was not really a free citizenship either. And of course, then we have to go into the whole Constantine thing and what Constantine was doing. But, you know, we have a whole article and you can read it. Was Paul a Roman citizen? No, he wasn't. And so there was another guy, Joseph F. And uh, I'm taking off the names here. I have the record somewhere else that I've written. But uh, Paul's appeal to Caesar was a legal strategy. This is what I wrote him. Because he made some statements about Paul appealing. As a Roman citizen, he was appealing to Caesar. Your average Roman citizen could not appeal <laughs> to Caesar to hear his court case. That that's you have to be somebody special. I mean, Caesar just wasn't hearing all these cases. That would just wore him out. It's a big empire. Paul could appeal to Caesar because of C, uh, Paul's status as Romeos and the fact that he was from Cilicia, this separate republic. And they explain that to some degree. You have to know the history of Cilicia and, and what was all going on there and why. Also know why his father was Romeos. Because that's, he inherited that status. Again, remember, and this is an important thing to point out, is you want to think you're free. Was your dad free? <laughs> was your mom free? Were they already in the system? You were born in bondage. Because I'm pretty sure most of you that are listening to this, your parents are already back in the bondage of Egypt. And you were born in Egypt. In bondage, they got you a number. You probably used it already. You want to throw it out the window and then take off running down the road and saying you're free? No, not a good strategy. Poor strategy. You're just going to become a burden on somebody else. No, seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Figure out what that is. And that's why we're trying to help you figure it out. So, anyway, I point out this, and I've talked about it other places, but I'll try to keep it really brief here. Caesar, uh, the appeal to Caesar was a legal strategy. He didn't do it. He pretty much, he didn't need to do it. He was pretty much already exempt because, uh, no, I shouldn't say, or found not guilty by Festus and him. He, he recommended that he appeal it to Jerusalem. Now, where, who in Jerusalem are you appealing it to? What court in Jerusalem is going to hear this? Is it a Roman court? I mean, when we have Agrippa and Festus, those are not necessarily domestic courts. Together, they're not. So who are they appealing it to? No, he wanted to appeal all the way to Rome because he had the status of Romeus, which allowed him to do this because that's almost like you're appealing to an international court. Now, so what was his strategy? All the judges, imperial judges throughout the empire were appointed by Caesar. If there was a case, a particular legal question that was going to be adjudicated by Caesar, was on appeal to Caesar, there would be no local imperial judges 
who would want to rule on that case because it was in the hands of Caesar. If you ruled on that case and Caesar ruled against you, that could be the end of your career. In some cases, it could be the end of your life. You could end up being banished. So you didn't want to do that. You didn't want to buck Caesar. And and so local courts could still persecute Christians. The Jews were certainly persecuting Christians. But by now, if you were convicted in a lower court in Judea, and you appealed, because now you had to remember the Pharisees said they had no king but Caesar. So in the appellate courts, it means that if you were convicted in the highest court in Judea, you could appeal, and there was probably a Roman court in Judea, in Jerusalem. You could probably, because that's what they seem to be saying, do we take his court case to Jerusalem? He's talking about appealing it to a Roman judge in Jerusalem, which likely there would be, uh, which would be like appealing to uh, Pontius Pilate, probably. But uh, he wasn't going to appeal to Pontius Pilate, and Pontius Pilate wasn't there at this time. And so whoever was there, he wasn't going to appeal. He wanted to appeal straight up to Caesar, and his particular status allowed him to do that, which meant that nobody was going to, no Roman judge would want to convict a Christian of the same charges that were being applied to Paul until they heard from Caesar. Because they didn't want to rule one way and then find out Caesar was going to rule another. So it gave a, a huge amount of protection. Somebody had said, oh, it might have been that Joseph F., who had said that uh, that Christian persecution wouldn't start for another 20 years. Roman Christian persecution wouldn't start for another 20 years. Well, uh, yeah, to some degree that's true, but who who put it off? Who stopped it? Well, it was Paul. He did it by this appealing. You just have to know how the courts work, how, how the brain works in people. Nobody wants to buck Caesar if you are appointed by Caesar. You don't want to have your adjudications overruled by Caesar. And they knew everybody was going to know that uh, that case is on appeal to Caesar. You probably want to let that go until Caesar decides. <laughs> and, of course, when he got to Rome, he's, he's staying in Britannia, the district of Britannia, under house arrest, which is the, the father of Claudia was also under house. He wasn't under house arrest. He was under arrest in Britannia, which was an area set aside by uh, the Roman emperor for the house of uh, Cracus. He goes by a couple of different names, but he was the king, a king in England that had been brought there and they were going to execute him. And he gave a speech in front of the Senate and the emperor. And they said, oh, we're not going to kill this guy. This guy's amazing. And also his daughter is amazing, <laughs> which was Gladys. And, uh, but Gladys was given the name of Claudia because she was adopted by Emperor Claudius. And that's who we read about in the New Testament when we read about Claudia and her brother was Linus, who was a bishop in Rome, a bishop, an overseer, one of those uh, episcopos in Rome. So there was at least, he was serving at least 100 families. 
And so he was a part of the Christian network. And the two daughters of Claudia, uh, they play an important role during the persecutions by Nero and this system. But we've talked a great deal about Nero and what was really going on with Nero. Uh, but uh, uh, but uh, this uh, Joseph F. says that... Uh, uh, yeah, I have to put quotes around this. Let's see. Another brief break. Yeah, you can't see all this online because I'm I'm down here in the code changing things. <laughs> uh, oh, did I just erase them? Where did I go? Oh, there it is. Okay. Uh, he writes uh, about me. Uh, you, he says, you have raised very different issues than Michael P. And uh, he is laser focused, he says, on biblical definitions of law and social foundations like few I have met. Well, the reality is I know, I don't know, Michael hasn't said anything to me about it, but I know he gets a lot of his stuff from what I wrote when Michael was just a kid. <laughs> I've been writing for over 50 years, and I don't think Michael's 50 years old yet. So, uh, so uh, but this guy thinks he's laser focused, but he sees me as uh, uh, focused. Where did he say it? I know he said it here definitions of law and social foundations and everything. Oh, yeah, and then he goes on to say, what I say is more traditional. Uh, so those of you who have seen what I say, do you think I'm more traditional? <laughs> I don't think uh, Joseph F. has a clue of what I say. I think he needs to find it out. Uh, but he says, but a little too American. I think Paul made his appointment with Caesar not as a legal strategy. Roman persecution wouldn't start for 20 years. And, of course, that's the quote, and I've just kind of addressed all this. In the future, he was uh, booking a sit, um, I think he means a seat, down with, uh, sit, oh, a sit down with Caesar, which was the only thing he really cared to get out of his jail time. Um, no, 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 it was a legal strategy, and for all the reasons I've already explained. And uh, he knew Caesar, that everybody knew that this is extremely dangerous. And the Caesar that he sat down with was not, uh, if he had sat down with Claudius, it would have maybe been a different story. Uh, but that's not who he was going to be sitting down with. <laughs> and, uh, you know, Nero was a crazy guy, a wild and crazy guy. And, you know, I've, I followed the descendants of Nero all the way up to our present time. Because some of them have been the leaders of America. And I, I actually still have hope that they will repent. Although they're running out of time. <laughs> but anyway, another long story. We can talk about it at the Burning Bush Festival. or at, I know that uh, people can uh, reserve. Uh, we're going to have a White Rock Festival here. You go to White Rock uh, Gathering. I think it's whiterockgathering.com. And uh, there's going to be a gathering in uh, this spring. 
and I, I don't know the date. I'm thinking, but if you go there, it'll tell you. I think it's in May. And uh, it's a primitive skills kind of a gathering. It's not, it's not sponsored by the church, but it's on the church property. And uh, but the people who are sponsoring it are helping us develop so that we can uh, uh, have, we have room for thousands of campers. Uh, but it still requires some facilities, and we're working on that, and hopefully we will expand that. Uh, but uh, there's a lot of things coming down the pike, but if you want to meet with us then or at the uh, Burning Bush Festival, which is in the fall, uh, we will talk about a lot of things that we don't talk about on the radio. <laughs> People need to get up to snuff with us. And so, anyway, the point I was making with uh, Michael is Paul used whatever. Oh, I guess this is still him. He's still writing. I'm putting quotes around this so I can keep track of what he wrote. I, I didn't have all these quotes on it. But he says that the uh, point I was making for uh, Michael is Paul used whatever sociocultural connections he had to advance the kingdom. Neither he nor Jesus saw a principle-based need to renounce or remain uninvolved in social and economic world, including the social legal ties. Nonsense. Absolute nonsense. <laughs> for all the reasons I've already explained. Social and legal ties, you mean like signing up for Corbin? The social welfare that was run through the Temple of Herod or the Temple of Roma or the Temple of Jupiter? Uh, was all Christians able to sign up for that? No, they had to touch not, taste not, eat not, because those social economic welfare systems were a snare because they were based on covetous practices. So he's absolutely wrong in this, but I don't think he reads the articles. He doesn't really seem to understand what we're doing, but he may do it. So anyway, I'll send him this recording when I have it finished. Uh, uh he says, uh, he nor Jesus did not renounce his citizenship or tell soldiers to renounce their military or slaves to renounce their masters. Well, half of that's true. But Jesus' kingdom was not of the Roman world. That's what he told the Pontius Pilate. When he said that, he says, you ain't got no jurisdiction because I'm not a part of your political system. I'm not a part of your constitutional order or system of government. You have no jurisdiction over me. And and certainly the same is true. And again, back to the fact that he's still thinking, I guess, that Romeos means that Paul was a Roman citizen. No, he wasn't. He was in full possession of his rights. He was not. The, the word for Roman citizen is queerus. It's not Romeos. And so, anyway, read the article. He didn't, so he doesn't know what he's talking about, as usual. But not surprising. I'm not picking on the guy. There's so much misinformation. But if you're not going to study, if you're not going to – I mean, he he's made a judgment that somehow or other the guy who learned a great deal from me is laser-focused, <laughs> but me, I'm more traditional and American. <laughs> he doesn't know me because he, he didn't read the articles. Or he did, his brain was turned off. I, I don't think he read the articles. Well, Jesus might say, he goes on to say, sell all and follow me and let the dead bury the dead. Neither seemed to think being or not being a citizen, soldier, even rabbi mattered. Well, it does matter. 
But I just said soldiers could be Christians, but they're not a part of the ecclesia. The ecclesia is the called out. Very clear that the called out in the wilderness was the Levites. It wasn't the average person. And it's very clear that Jesus called out men and appointed them a kingdom, not to exercise authority or coercion, but to facilitate a system of charity and love. But that system has to be driven by the individual. And you could be a soldier and do that. And even even, uh, when uh, John the Baptist was asked, the soldiers knew that their status was unique. And they said, what about us? Can we get baptized? He didn't say, yeah, get baptized anyway. He said, you know, don't take bribes. Do your job. You know, because ultimately there were lots of Roman soldiers who became Christians. Because being a Roman soldier was to be responsible. And being a Christian was to be responsible. And that's another whole subject in this, by itself. And we talk about it in different places. And these are all pieces of the puzzle. But you cannot serve God and mammon. <laughs> and when he says mammon, he means the unrighteous mammon. And mammon is entrusted wealth. And Herod was setting up a system of entrusted wealth. The golden calf was a system of entrusted wealth. And and Rome was doing the same thing with their temples. And you can't do both. It's that simple. You can't serve God and mammon. So it does make a difference. You either serve the one and hate the other, vice versa. So anyway, maybe I'll put that quote in there. Uh, and anyway, he didn't think my comments were laser focused, and I said that they were laser focused. <laughs> uh, I'll have to go through the, all this as I follow the recording, cut, cut stuff out, because I just pasted this in an email and sent it to me. Uh, and my answers were not traditional. We kind of already went through that. And so, uh, and his comment about persecution. See, this is, I just kind of said all these things now, but this was, I have there the writings of what I wrote him. And I'll try to either put some things in italics and some things not so that you can read it for yourself. But uh, the audio will be independent. Uh, these are just my notes, but I'll leave my notes in here. Uh, and I can see it because he, he did say Roman persecution but what stopped it was Paul because the, very clearly the Romans a lot of the Romans were not going to like what the message of Jesus was some did but they had to repent and when Claudius threw out 14,000 Jews from Rome those were Christian Jews he was throwing out because he saw them as a threat because the power of Caesar was dependent upon the free bread. And the Christians were setting up their own system. They would still do business with other people on their street, but they were not of the system of social welfare because that's what it says to you. If you go back to Proverbs, you go back to Psalms, you go back to the prophets, they're talking about the rulers who set up these systems of uh, one purse, of covetous practices, of, you know, these systems where what should have been for your welfare becomes a snare. This was what brought you back into the bondage. 
And the city-states had them, and that's, of course, the golden calf was just the beginning of the same kind of system. It was bringing you back to the bondage of Egypt. But anyway, I see I made some comments directly to Michael. Uh, and he never answered me. I was saying, so I was curious what they, he thinks about if he thinks my position is more traditional view, because <laughs> he has read a lot of the stuff and he knows darn well I am not a, a traditional view, but I don't know. I can leave it in there. Um, to Joseph, I wrote, the point I was making for Michael is Paul used uh, whatever social, uh, let's see, I'm not even sure who says this. I may have to go back to the original notes. Uh, maybe I'm going to come to an end here. How much farther? Oh, yeah, I'm almost to the end. I'll cut out some of this stuff. But here's uh, oh, yeah, this is probably, this is this is some of the last points. Uh, Michael had said uh, okay, I'm looking at uh, okay, uh, I don't know if I have the original post that Michael Michael had said something about commerce, and or is he Michael or somebody said something about commerce not involved in commerce but animal husbandry and all this kind of stuff, very clearly that the the Christians had all kinds of skills. They were metallurgists. They were uh, stonemasons. Uh, they were carpenters. They were tent makers. They they did all kinds of things. It wasn't animal husbandry. They did a lot of trade and business. Uh, but I say here, Jesus did not renounce and remained uninvolved. You know, and I put this in quotes because he said he renounced uh, and remained uninvolved in social and economic world of the Pharisees, including social legal ties. Uh, of their Corbin uh, was their welfare system run by their, which was their. Uh, yeah, which was their Corbin system run by their government, which was civil charity, legal charity, what we call legal charity. And he and Paul and Peter and James and all the prophets said, don't eat of their tables. And I have an article on tables. And uh, because their welfare was a snare, that's an article, welfare is an article, snare is an article. We show you how this repeats this over and over again in the Bible. And their dainties, uh, uh, include the wages of unrighteousness. So, and the wages of unrighteousness is also called the rewards of unrighteousness. Same words in the Greek. They just translate it different, different places. And they make you merchandise and they curse your children. It's very clear that this is the Bible. Most people read this and just keep on going. They don't know that doesn't have anything to do with my preacher tells me. But your preacher's in that ear tickling business. He's not in the you know, the kingdom of God and the righteousness business of Christ, which is why there are so many Christians that are still workers of iniquity thinking that they're born again. It's a shame because they're going to, go, they're going to hear from the Lord that says, get you from me. I know you're not. But Jesus and Moses were both capitalists. Why would anyone object to commerce? This is a question that I asked because somebody was talking like commerce is a bad thing. And nobody ever answered this, which is defined as the exchanging, buying, and selling of things having economic value between two or more entities or parties. For uh, example, 
goods and services and money. That's how do you think the guy turned five talents into ten? There's nothing wrong with commerce. Now, there can get to be something. There's nothing wrong with capitalism. There can be if you're totally greedy and selfish for gain. But if you're seeking the kingdom of God, you're also creating a society that operates on faith, hope, and charity. In order to do that, you have to have a welfare system dependent entirely on charity alone and no of those coercive contributions that were talked about in the beginning by Paul VP. You can't have that. Now, certainly if money is used in that exchange, it should be things that are actually of value. But you can still use Federal Reserve notes. And I've given the story where I go into a store and I've got a big long line behind me and they ring it up and they say it's $98. And I say, uh, can I pay that? Uh, do you want that payment in real money or will you take a note? And they look at you like, uh, what are you talking about? I just rang up all this stuff. You don't have any money? And I says, well, no, do you want real money? And I hold out some gold and silver coins in one hand. Or will you take this? And I hold up a Federal Reserve note, a $100 bill. And they, they point to the $100 bill and says, oh, we take those. So I gave them the opportunity of having a real exchange here. Of course, I, I, I don't want to give it on face value. <laughs> but they always have always taken the $100 bill. They look at that $100 bill, and that's what's valuable to them. So I've just made an exchange. It's not dependent upon, you know, you know, I would have given them just weights and measures. We'd have to negotiate the price. But if they want the note, I will give them because that's what they hold of value. And, and, and that was an open exchange. And because I often also include the explanation, well, you know, this is a note. It says on a note, I pointed the word note. <laughs> palming my gold and silver coins in my pocket. I think I only had like one or two little gold coins. But uh, I certainly didn't want to give them 98 silver dollars. <laughs> but, uh, you know, that would have been a further discussion. But I've done this in front of whole crowds of people. But the reality is people don't know what's a value. Now, certainly, if you really... You know, and we've talked about that in Real Money and lots of other recordings. Uh, I'm going to brief this down so that people can look at this and and hear it because I don't think the guys will want to sit through three hours. But I point out, Michael P., you can be subject to Rome and be a Christian. You could be a soldier, a slave, a prisoner, and still be a Christian. What makes you a Christian is repentance which means thinking differently, which means thinking like Christ, where, where you're becoming, you know, uh, entangled in the elements of Christ's thinking. And, and of course, seeking the kingdom of God and his righteousness, which means sitting down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and creating a social welfare system based on faith, hope, and charity, a network that is bound together by that charity of faith, hope, and charity. And... Also, therefore, all the other things that we might need as the system collapses. If you're not building that system, if you're just out there, you know, doing your own little farming and, and, and that sort of thing, that's a little bit too selfish for Christ's thinking. 
So that's thinking differently has to be according to the word, which, of course, the word we've talked about this in our study of John is the logos. And logos doesn't just mean word. Rima means word in the Greek. Logos means right reason. So we have to be functioning according to the right reason of Christ, which means we have to be caring about one another as much as we care about ourselves. We just have to be doing that. Uh, modern Christians covet his neighbor's goods through men who exercise authority, which is the opposite of what Christ said. They're not real Christians. They can become real Christians. I wish they would. They're doing so many, so many things that Christ opposed and not doing some of the very basics that Christ did command which wasn't to pay taxes. Maybe you owe the taxes, pay the taxes, but he didn't command that. He commanded that his ministers make the people sit down in the tens, hundreds, and thousands and start sharing with each other in a way that strengthens the poor. That strengthens the poor. This is why we write and we talk about the gospel of the king and the logos of Christ. Now, the other thing that I came up with uh, in is uh, I just just moments before I went on the air, I was listening to uh, Archbishop uh, Vagano, and I can send you the link. Uh, and he's kind of a renegade guy talking against the Great Reset and uh, Klaus Schwab and the World Economic Forum and Harari and all these crazy things that are coming out of that group. Uh, and he says that they need to get together with their governments and socioeconomic and all this other thing. I can't remember all the quotes that he was saying, but, the, you know, and the politics of their own government. And I, I'm thinking, like, you're an archbishop, Pagano, and I like a lot of the things he says. I mean, compared to all the others, he's a lot more awake. But what they should be doing is looking for the real kingdom of God, the real gospel of Christ. And implementing that because you don't need a majority vote. You're not going to get it. Well, most people are going to want the dead. are going to want to bury the dead. They're going to want to continue to take a bite out of one another. They're going to want to continue to cover their neighbor's goods. They're just going to want more benevolent rulers. But you don't get a more benevolent ruler if you're biting one another. You'll only get a more benevolent ruler when you're actually doing what Christ said, which is the opposite of covetous practices. And public religion. It will be private religion, pure religion. So anyway, with all that, uh, I'll go back and see what's going on in the chat room, see if anybody raised their hand, see if anybody's there. <laughs> I got to find out. I haven't even looked at the station all this time. Oh, lots of people talking. Uh, some people I don't know. Uh Okay, buddy, there's been a lot of conversation. <laughs> uh, somebody be wise as a serpent. Okay. I cannot make heads or tails out of all of this. Maybe I'll have to save it for another time. I, don't, I can't even tell who he's talking to. I see... Post after post after post that he's making.
so he says he was granted uh, liberty a few times in Indonesia. Oh, he's a Navy guy. That's what he means by liberty. Uh, the French called it the Statue of Liberty. <laughs> Yeah, I can't. I can't tell. I don't know. Does anybody know who "Be Wise as a Serpent" is? <laughs> he, you know, I I see one comment by somebody, and then I see ten comments by him. Uh, he doesn't seem to want to have an actual conversation with anybody. Oh my gosh, he has lots of uh lots of posts, very active in there. I I can I'll have a conversation with some of the people that were in the chat room and we'll see if we can't figure out who he is, what he's up to. But uh he may make sense, but uh, he he's abusing the chat room cuz he like I say somebody says one thing and then he'll say five things that has nothing to do with the one thing that they say. <laughs> he doesn't seem to be wanting to learn anything. He thinks he already knows. Uh, but I don't know. That's fine. Um, okay. He said something about capitalism. Capital. Capitalism refers to cap head of slaves. No, it doesn't. It refers to capital. <laughs> Uh, anyway, I'm just reading down to this, but he's not—he's not making sense. Uh, I was trying to think, he's got all these statements he makes here, so what? And, and is, is he making comments at, at, at what I'm saying? Did I say that Caligula was noble? <laughs> Did I say that uh, Nero was noble? Did somebody, nobody said that. Where Where is he getting... All of his comments, he's just like a, a stream of consciousness. I'm sorry. I'll go down here and see if he said anything because he may be still in there hearing me. Let's see. Yeah, sometimes uh, when when somebody like this, uh, be wise as a serpent, I'll probably cut this out of the final program, uh, is in there just posting, rambling on, posting, 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 posting not conversing with anybody, not responding directly to anybody or statements that anybody's making. It certainly isn't responding to what I said because I didn't say these things that he's talking about. Um, amazing. Yeah. I can't figure out his brain. <laughs> and maybe you don't want to go in there. Uh, Yeah, okay, the, somebody says that it seems to me that to be commenting cued off of things you were saying, but 
Uh, I was I just read like 50 of them and I don't see anything that is skewed off of what I said because I mentioned uh, an emperor which I mentioned I don't know I even mentioned Caligula um, but I did mention Nero and Claudius Caligula was insane <laughs> so anyway um uh, you know, I, I'm I'm afraid the yeah, looking at Sarah's comment, uh yeah, nobody seems to know him. I wonder if there's a way in which to moderate guys like that. Because we can do that if they're interfering with the chat room. I don't know that they're interfering, it's just spewing out stuff left and right. Um I didn't see anybody's hand up, but um yeah, it, it, it's very trolly. Uh, and his approach doesn't seem to know what we're talking about. He certainly doesn't know what I'm talking about because none of these uh, Romans persecuted pagans at every opportunity because pagans would not leave their land to fight, suffer, and die for the empire. Actually, pagans is a term invented by Christians much later than this period. So... And it was applied to people who were idolaters. And, of course, we know that idolaters are people who went to temples that were funded by covetous practice, those coercions that Paul was talking about. Not Paul, the apostle, but the Paul and the, the deal. So he's misapplying terms. That's one of the things. The definitions of terms is dependent a great deal on when you're using them and when you're applying them. If you're applying terms that didn't really show up till 200 A.D. Uh, to events that were taking place in 100 B.C., <laughs> you're misapplying the terms. Uh, and you probably don't know the definition of the terms. Um, yeah, the guy... Uh, yeah, I don't know who the guy is, but I'm wondering, let's see, so he does not appear to be in the chat room anymore, so he seems to have left us, going to look at when he left. Oh, he says, Avirazain, on service. Oh, he says the Lakers are coming, you probably want to go watch the game, that's his mentality. But anyway... I won't keep you guys any longer. I got a lot of things that we're losing daylight. I may want to go out and check lambs, although my son is here, so he may be doing all that. I'm kind of hoping he did. Uh, but anyway, uh, we'll be going back to John next week. Uh, those of you who try to call in on the morning program, uh, I logged in directly with the station because uh, – I usually, Paul logs in and then he sets up a where you can call in and listen to the show, but he was unable to do that. He's busy with family matters. So anyway, I don't know what we'll be doing next week, but uh, I don't see if there was any questions that anybody wanted to ask. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> be wise as a serpent. Uh, a lot of rattling. Yeah, and the guy doesn't make any sense. 
But I don't know that he's trying to. But anyway, I won't keep you any longer. But I'm going to cut a lot of this rambling out. But I thought, like, if there was something that somebody else who actually is on topic had a question that I missed, I could go back and look at it. I didn't have any. I'm glad I never looked over at the chat room while all of this was going on. It's a lot of nonsense. Okay. Peace on your house. May God be with you. One last look at the bottom of all this. Gobbledygook to see if there was any question. Okay, thanks for coming. God bless. Peace on your house. Okay, I see Sarah asked about the bishop. You have been listening to The Keys of the Kingdom with Brother Gregory of His Holy Church. For more information on the educational ministry provided by His Holy Church and Brother Gregory, including services, counseling, lectures, books, and other audio materials, please write to His Church at Summer Lake, Box 10, Summer Lake, Oregon, Nine seven six four zero. Yeah. You can also find us on the web at www.hisholychurch.net. You know, I have things double linked and all that kind of stuff. So I'll put that in. Let's see. Paste it. What's the deal? Okay. Well, I ended up putting it in twice. But anyway, if that's what you're looking for is the bishop. (laughs) Okay, she's got it. Okay, have a good one, everybody. God bless. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.